Hey, what's up everybody? It's your favorite electrician, Doug here. Welcome back for episode four of season three of the Modern Electrician Podcast, a podcast that explores the culture of the trades. We get into the lives of trade people and talk about why they do what they do. Um, We share our passion for the work that we do uh, through our stories about uh, kind of how we came about to be in this trade. Uh, Before we get started with episode four, I would like to quickly mention that uh, this last week, one of our own uh, sparkies in the trade community online here, uh, his daughter, who is also an electrician, was in a car accident, and she's she's gonna she's gonna get there, but she's uh, she needs some help, and and she's not gonna be on her feet for a while. So there is a GoFundMe page that is in my bio. Click the link in my bio. A lot of other people are sharing it too. Um, please share that link. Um, you know things like that happen. And, it, and it's really rough when it happens. And so what better way to use this technology than to spread a word like that? So if you can, please go check out. He, his name is Mr. Hondo. Uh, Dennis is his name. And uh, like I said, the link is in my bio, uh, in Instagram, at modern underscore electrician. So just click on that. Please donate and share it. Let's help him out. All right. So uh, getting into this episode, what I'd really like to talk about is... Um, you know, we're always talking about working in the present, you know, how to, how to do what we do the best way that we can every day. Um, but what we really have to spend some time talking about is how did we get here? Um, how did the electrical trade come to be in the way that it, it is right now? And um, we all know a lot of the story anyway of uh, Edison and Westinghouse and Tesla and that big battle. Um, that they went through to kind of who, who was going to control the current, um, the ACDC current, you know, any Sparky knows that story. I get that. Um, but what I wanted to kind of do was geek out a little bit more into the nuances of how electricity after it was being produced, how it got into everybody's homes. And so I reached out, uh, kind of at random to, uh, a PhD who he, he founded a, a think tank, uh, based around energy economy, and they've got a location here in D.C. Uh, his name is Dr. Robert Bradley, and he's written a handful of books. One of the books is called Edison to Enron, and it, it talks about um, energy economy, energy economics. And so I wanted to have him on and get into the main person that his book kind of talks about, who, which is Samuel Insull. Now, if you don't know the name Samuel Insull and you're an electrician, it's okay. I didn't know the name Samuel, and, you know, which is crazy because, and you'll hear with us talking about this guy, what, what this guy did was, was very similar to what uh, Henry Ford did for Ford Motor Company, which is, you know, he took a vehicle that was kind of a, a fringe thing, an automobile, and made it accessible to people, made it, you know, made it affordable, and it, it kind of made it so the masses could drive cars. And Samuel Insel was largely responsible for doing the same thing with electricity in homes. Uh, he, he was just this massive business magnate uh, who operated out of Chicago. He actually started as Edison's assist, uh, assistant apprentice and became the VP of uh, Edison General Electric. Anyway, um, I find this kind of conversation fascinating because if you're an electrician and you, and you aren't interested in the history of, of your trade, I think you're missing a, a massive, a big element that will help. There's something about 
and I'm not saying you guys are like this. I'm just saying it's important if you're a young electrician and you don't know these things, like get, get excited about the history of your trade because um, it'll, it'll help you gain more of an appreciation for, um, I mean, just the, just the electricity period. You know, the fact that people went out in storms and flew kites because they were like, I'll bet there, there was an argument years and years ago, you know, when people weren't electricians, they were uh, considered electrical philosophers. That was what like early electrical experimenters were called, electrical philosophers, of which Ben Franklin was one. And, you know, there, there was this argument about is lightning that's in the sky, is it the same electricity as electricity that's generated through magnets or whatever Faraday had figured out at the time. Um, and there were some people that were like, no, it's different. And some people said, no, it's the same energy. It's the same thing. And, and so, I mean, it's just kind of crazy. It, to me, it's the same as when people domesticate animals like horses, where it's just like, golly, like the first people to be courageous enough to be like, I'm going to go get on that horse's back um, for the betterment of all of us. Like, you know, running 50 miles sucks. That horse can do it easily. I'll just get on its back. Like, you know, you have to have balls to play with the natural phenomenon that's bigger than you. And I think the early electricians were totally like that. I mean, that, you know, and it's funny to think back to that too, because early electricians were like some of the most intelligent scientific minds of the time. So, um, it says a lot. I mean, it's, we're, we're from a noble, um, group of people that, that I'm proud to, you know, be a part of. And so I wanted to pick Dr. Bradley's brain and just kind of geek out on Samuel Insel for a little bit. So uh, that's the episode. I hope you guys really like the conversation. He has a book called Edison to Enron. Uh, so check that out when you get a chance. Um, I also read a great book recently. Um, it's called uh, Empires of Light. And it kind of in, it details everything I just kind of was briefly talking about and, and uh, as well as what I'm going to get into with, with Dr. Bradley here. Uh, before we get started like to thank our sponsors, ledlightingsupply.com. Go check them out, especially if you're working on a project that um, you're designing a lighting setup for a large warehouse space or a parking lot. Go to ledlightingsupply.com, get a complete photometric design, um, and then find the right lights for your situation. It's all right there, so go check them out. Also, World of Electricians. We all know World of Electricians for their stickers, their apparel. The great memes. Uh, go check them out on Instagram. Get yourself some gear. Thanks, y'all. Hope you enjoy this yes, conversation. Uh, I'm Robert Bradley Jr. You can call me Rob. Uh, I am the founder and CEO of the Institute for Energy Research. Uh, it's a nonprofit educational foundation I founded in my house in 1989. I was wow. working in the business world. Uh, for of all companies in Ron. Okay. And uh, I needed an independent voice because I was publishing. I was giving talks uh, under my own affiliation. And okay. so uh, I formed IER. And uh, IER has since grown significantly. It used to be me out of a house with oh. audited financial and a board of directors. That's what a nonprofit has sure. to have. That's right. But it was uh, called a think bucket rather than a think tank <laughs> because right. uh, it was very small. And right. 
Uh, people would ask me for my suite number. I'd tell them we had the whole whole building. Maybe you have your whole building. <laughs> I do. I got the whole house. Oh, great. Whole house. And then uh, <laughs> someone asked me to do something, I'd tell them I'd, I'll put my best person on it. That's right. Maybe Which you, uh, you uh, uh, do that also. But Oh, man, I've always got the best people. Always have the best. Yeah. Always <laughs> put right. the best on it. Don't delegate too much. So um, in 2007, IER expanded significantly to Washington, D.C. All right. Uh, We have a staff of probably 10 plus employees, a number of consultants, and we're the free market voice in the energy debate. Right. That's what Um, I'm picking up. Yep. uh, My own interest has been in energy scholarship, the history of the energy industry. Yeah. And I found out that uh, not only is history very fascinating, you find out all sorts of things that you didn't know before, but that you see patterns and can devise or recommend public policies uh, by understanding the past, understanding market forces, understanding political forces. So, right. You, but you focus largely on all types of energy, not just the electrical industry. You're talking oil, gas before that all happened. And you're looking for, because you guys are basically, correct me if I'm wrong, you're economists, right? You, you, yes, uh, my uh, degrees are in uh, economics and political economy. Okay. And early in my career, I, I wrote a book that most people would write at the end of their career, and that's a treatise on oil and gas. It's a, uh, I should pull it out here. It's somewhere around. Uh, It's a a, a 2000 uh, page uh, history of oil and gas from the 1850s really uh, through the mid 1980s. And I did it by industry segment, exploration and production. That was uh, the the largest of it all. Uh, Transmission you know, pipe, pipelines, um, allocation, uh, trading, then refining, and then retailing. Retailing being basically the service station. And retailing is uh, quite fascinating. Uh, okay. We've always had a lot of oil. There's always been gasoline price wars. And just right. seeing the entrepreneurship of uh, one dealer trying to sell uh, his or her diesel or gasoline at the expense of another is quite a story. So that was my basis. And electricity was something that was kind of too complicated for me. It was like okay. engineering. And uh, in my day job at Enron, I got to understand the electricity industry. I worked for a pipeline, Transwestern Pipeline, that sold natural gas out to the Southern California market and later the Northern California market. Right. And natural gas was sort of the swing fuel of electric generation in the right. 80s and uh, 90s. Uh, you right. know, nuclear, coal, uh, they came first. They had the lowest incremental cost. Sure. But then uh, uh, natural gas, depending on the hydro year or whether some units were offline, that's when natural gas bumped up. So uh, I learned about electricity through California. Huh. Uh, and then when I decided uh, to write a history of Enron, uh, what began as one book turned into three and is now four, 
huh. I had a history book. Um, part one was worldview and philosophy. And uh, I can probably find the book somewhere around here. Well, maybe I, I can't when I need it uh, the <laughs> most. It's called Capitalism at Work. Okay. And then the second book was a prehistory of Enron looking at the natural gas electricity industry. Okay. And uh, that book, uh, Edison to Enron, yeah. uh, was, can you see it? I can. Uh, it was uh, quite an undertaking, and um, I got into the history of the electricity business, and that got me not only to Thomas uh, Edison, of course, but to the business side of the business, which was pioneered by a gentleman that very few know today named Samuel Ensel. That's right, Samuel Ensel. So Samuel Ensel started his career as Thomas Edison's apprentice, I guess is uh, all right word for it. But he was British, right, Ensel? Yes, uh, he, was, uh, he was a Brit and he grew up in London and by... Uh, he started working at age 14, uh, doing interesting things. He was just driven. Yeah. He was always either working or training himself to be better at work. And he happened upon a job uh, working as an assistant to Thomas Edison's London representative who right. was working on uh, the uh, telephony. Uh, the telephone side of the business. All right. And so uh, this was luck, uh, but it was good luck and it was deserved luck in the sense that Ensel uh, was hired for this job at a very young age because he had a lot of proficiencies. So uh, the call came that Thomas Edison back in New York City needed a personal assistant. Right. And the London representative of uh, Edison said, I have a, a great person for you. So Ensel gets on a boat by himself and takes the two-week voyage and shows up. How old is he at this point? Uh, 21. Okay, 21 so when he gets it's, to the uh, States. About, uh, it's about dusk when he gets off the boat and he meets Edison, and Edison is there with uh, some of his top people. All right. And they, uh, it turns out the next day, uh, one of Edison's top people uh, is going, needs to go to Europe to raise capital for Edison's uh, mm -hmm. next ventures. And they pulled an all-nighter and Samuel Ensel uh, uh, told the group uh, how much they could raise at different investment houses and armed Edison's assistant who went over and actually raised that amount. So from wow. the first night, uh, Edison realized that uh, he had a, uh, a, a dynamo a protege. Totally, right. Yeah, and he, and he kind of like, <clears throat> as Edison's case went and as he, you know, went on this voyage of um, taking his DC model of, of uh, electricity and trying to bring it to market with his substations. Um, Insta was there step by step and almost was like, a, if not completely, was a, somebody that Edison really confided in and, and gained insight from, even though he was significantly younger. Right. You know, he was uh, uh, within a couple of weeks, uh, Insel got power of attorney from Edison. With, within a couple of weeks. Yeah. And, or at, it might have been, been a month. 
Okay. Uh, but so, I mean, that's insane. Yeah, it is insane. Yeah. And within a few years, uh, Ensel is basically running the company we know uh, today as General Electric. Wow. Uh, back then, it was much more prosperous than it was now. Sure. But um, uh, um, Edison was not very good at business. Yeah, uh, he was an inventor. Was, uh, you know, as an entrepreneur, he had definite failings. And you mentioned the AC-DC fight. Uh, yeah. Edison was on the wrong end of that. and got He really was. Involved. Yeah. Uh, so... Um, uh, but Ensel was struggling at all all the time. He was taking the train, yeah, uh, uh, trying to raise capital in New York City for the uh, for uh, for uh, Edison General Electric at the time. Okay, uh, and it was a it was a tough experience. And then the next chapter is uh, well, what Edison uh, discovered uh, as far as. Uh, uh, massing electricity, turning electricity from a luxury good for like J.P. Morgan's mansion right. to a necessity for the masses. Edison understood early on that there were economies of scale and generation sure. and that these small dynamos that would serve a house or uh, an office mile right. were, were not the way to go. Right. So there was a split between Edison and Insel in uh it would have been um 1892 and edison i mean insul knows there's a huge entrepreneurial opportunity here to uh to make electricity something for the for the masses right so he looks around where do i want to move to and he chooses chicago chicago right yeah chicago and so edison moves there uh he's head of a very a small uh, electric company, and he buys out one, two, five, ten, you know, fifteen or so of his competitors one by one. All right. And what Edison, uh, what Ensel does is he junks the dynamos, these small units, and he turns to mass production. And okay. in 1902, he uh, built a five megawatt plant. Which at the time was like, they said it couldn't be done, right? Like he, he didn't he see done, it? He saw it in like Europe or something. He saw like a four megawatt or something. And uh, yeah, similar, similar to Steve Jobs in the way that he would put these um, time constraints on his engineers and they would say, We're, we need two weeks. And he would say, well, if you can do it in two, you can do it in one. And if you can do it in one, you can meet your deadline. Right. You know, it's like... Yeah. Insel strikes me as, as that type of entrepreneur. Well, Insel was not only an entrepreneur. Uh, one reason he was a great entrepreneur is he had a good sense of technology, he had an intuition of what could be done. Because you can get crazy people to say, oh, you know, we're going to power all the U.S. with solar, and they run into physical problems. But right. Insel had a sense of what the generators could do. So his five megawatt plan in I think 1902 was about double the largest that had ever been constructed. Wow. And like you say, it was in Europe and uh, Ensel's getting his uh, information from there. And they, they told him it couldn't be done and Ensel was there when uh, they turned it on. He figured that 
Uh, and he had a great, uh, a great engineer, an MIT uh, engineer, you know, who was just a great figure in the history of the electric industry, too. Okay. Um, what was his name? So they turned it on and it, it, it vibrated a lot. They shut it down. They improved it a little bit and it worked. And so they went from huh. five megawatts to 10 megawatts. And, you know, 20 years later, they were in the, uh, you know, 25 megawatt. And it just went up from there. Wow. So, so Insel was kind of the person who, who saw, I guess, because it wasn't uh, the whole Westinghouse Tesla contingency, their concept was similar, right? They, they thought that obviously the AC current could be stepped up and down through transformers. So it could be, you know, sent to the rural areas where Edison's, you know, you're, you're right. talking a one block. Yeah, that, that comes a, a, a little later now. Okay. Uh, ma massing production is just one piece of the business model for the modern electric industry. Okay. And there's about five other pieces of it. And Insel fig uh, figured it out. Okay. Uh, in a way that had never been done before. But, but Edison had the idea of massing production. You know, okay. Edison saw that the that central station electricity versus sort of a, a very inefficient distributed dynamos was the way to go. Right. Well, Ensel, uh, 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 Ensel was the first person uh, in the industry to hire analysts who would sit there and go over data. Hmm. And the key thing that they uh, would construct for Insel was the load curve. Okay? okay. How much electricity is being used per day uh, on, uh, and you get an average and you get peaks and valleys and sure. Insel's looking at this and going, you know, we have to pay interest on our, uh, on our infrastructure, right, right, twenty-four hours a day, R regardless of who's using electricity, electricity, right? Yeah, yeah, because you got to uh, use it when know, it's produced. Something is wrong here, right? So, uh, Ansel gets to work trying to increase demand. Okay, uh, and he would enter into contracts with with companies. He would call it cut, uh, uh, cut and try. Cut and try. Uh, he would uh, introduce unprecedentedly uh, low rates under a long-term contract huh. to get him to come on knowing that the incremental cost is just the coal that you're using, right? Hmm. Yeah, okay. Okay, it's, you know, average cost, that's sunk cost. So he's entering into all these promotional contracts and the, and the people in the industry are going, that's crazy. But in, Insel knows he has to increase demand, particularly uh, other than lighting. And so okay. things like elevators become mm -hmm. very important because mm -hmm. they even out the load factor. Uh, mm -hmm. So that makes so sense. Insel's doing all this studying, and he's also realized that there's not only economies of scale in production, but in consumption. So the mm -hmm. more people you hook up, even if it's if you have one apartment complex and you have one right next to it mm -hmm. and you think their load curve would be about the same, getting that second one, guess what? It increases your load factor. Right. There's enough differentiation hmm. uh, even among similar units where you're not only increasing demand, 
but you're increasing the load factor. So he realized there's a huge economies of scale hmm. in consumption, not only production. Okay. Now, there was a real problem in the electric industry at the time, and that is companies that would uh, increase their capacity uh, generation to meet the peak demand, they found they were losing money. I'll bet. I bet. And so they didn't know how to price. They didn't okay. know how to price. Right. That sounds complicated. Uh, it's very, because, you know, and, and something I should have said at the very beginning is electricity is completely different from every everything else because once you produce it, you have to consume it. Got to use it, right? Yeah. It's always been very, so, yeah. you know, Flagging it behind. needed its own business model and Insel's figuring this out. Well, something fortuitous happened. Insel took a very rare vacation and went over to England and in a, a seaport town called Brighton. At night, he noticed the lights were on. The businesses mm -hmm. would leave their lights on. And he'd go, hmm. well, how in the world can they afford that? Right. So he did some investigation and he found that the municipality was using a meter, uh, um, the right meter, and this was something I'd never seen before. Not only did it register your total usage, it registered the usage per uh, time of day. Yeah. So you see the max and the mins. Hmm. And what Wright was able to do with this is to charge, uh, have a demand charge and not only a volumetric charge. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So if everyone's paying a demand charge and you're not using much electricity, it's expensive. Yeah. If you have a demand charge and you're using a whole lot, it's not much at all. Right. So this was a way to introduce new customers who were very peaky. Huh. Okay. Yeah. So, so it like incentivizes people that use a lot of electricity or to use a lot of electricity, right? Just to use it. Yeah. It's, okay. You know, okay. This is what you're, this is what you're going to pay, have to pay. It, that's what makes it profitable for me to add you as a customer. That makes now, sense. Now, do you want to pay it or not? Right. Okay. So, Ensel goes back to the States and then brings Mr. Wright over, and he introduces to the industry two-part pricing. And what this does, this allows the economic calculation to know whether it's profitable or not to add the incremental customer. So, okay. Uh, Let's see. So far, we have uh, uh, massing of production, massing of consumption, two-part rates. Yeah. Something else. Uh, a coal strike uh, messed up Ensel's, uh, you know, uh, uh, service at Commonwealth Edison. So Ensel says, "I have to practice vertical integration." So he uh, uh, partnered with a fellow named Frank Peabody of Peabody mm -hmm. Coal. And he locked in all his coal uh, and he uh, would integrate back to that. So he has, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the inputs he needs for his steady generation. So there was already horizontal integration where Ensel is buying everyone out for more money than they thought, junking their dynamos and adding some transmission uh, to uh, hook them up. So that's, is that five things we have now? Maybe. Um, uh, uh, vertical <laughs> integration, 
horizontal integration, mm -hmm. massing of production, massing of consumption. Right. And two-part pricing. That's it, right. And uh, that might be five. Um, <laughs> but here is Insel's next innovation. And he's, you know, he's learning this as it goes along. Uh, industry people are telling him, oh, you know, you're crazy. It never been done before. Insel buys a uh, country home, maybe 20 miles from Chicago. All right. And he goes there, and it's electrified, but with a very inefficient dynamo. Okay. In the town, the town has a little dynamo, uh, and it's providing electricity. And Insel goes, you know, I can't, uh, you know, I can't be using this, given you know my whole philosophy. <laughs> sure, of course. So Insel spends a day in his car, going around and seeing all the the local farms and what they're using electricity for. And he says that he is going to expand the transmission lines from Chicago to the big megawatt generation plants out to the country. And okay. everyone goes, the economics will never work. Okay. But, uh, you know, Insel knows he can get the incremental cost of the coal, right? Right. He figures he can get that. And it all worked, and it worked spectacularly. And guess what made it work? The load curve. Okay, huh. the load curve of the farms and the small communities was different enough from the city sure. where not only are you, you know, getting back the price of coal, which, you know, the local dynamo would get, but right. the cost of transmission is being paid back because uh, they're making incremental money because they're, you know, not at the peak. Okay, that uh, makes so, sense. So uh, this, you know, this is a revolution in the, elect, uh, the electric industry in the, you know, 1920s. Sure. And uh, he starts wiring up other, this is the beginning of a rural uh, yeah. electrification. Now, I left yeah. out the suburbs, but Ensel went from the city to the suburbs. Okay. And was able to do that too because of the uh, uh, the low, low curve economics. So he forms a big uh, new utility company called Middle West Utilities, and they're stringing up all sorts of things. Yeah. And Insul took this a step further by stringing up um, or, or adding transmission between major utilities where rather than build generation plants just in case you can import your power wow all right uh cheaper so he's, so he's tying it all together he he's figuring it all out and yeah. that's why it, uh Insel is really the john d rockefeller of electricity yeah. that no one knows about so why do you think that is why is it that i mean electricity is the most prominent resource nowadays that's like you know poverty is is depicted by a lack of electricity in a lot of places. It's so prominent. Why is it that we know Henry Ford and what he did for making cars accessible to regular people and we know about John D. Rockefeller? Why don't, why don't we know about Insul? There's a reason for that. Insul, okay. uh, Insul became probably the most revered business figure from about you know the 1910s through the 20s. Okay. He was number one, and his 
uh, holding companies, uh, you know, anchored by Chicago Edison, which became Chicago Commonwealth. He right. controlled one eighth of the nation's electricity. Wow. Wow is right. Yeah. And he and was on, apparently like great to work for too. Correct. Uh, I mean, he's like corporate culture was fantastic. Okay. He was doing all sorts of things. Uh, he was having, you know, sports. Yeah. They had like a baseball team. Yeah. They had a baseball team. They would have, you know, dances. Uh, they had uh, profit sharing. It hmm. was just an incredible uh, corporate culture. Okay. And he was influenced by a gentleman named Samuel Smiles, someone else you'd never heard of, yeah. who was really the uh, Adam Smith of applied capitalism, giving huh. you the basic insights on how to succeed in the business world. And hmm. That's a book that came out in 1865. Adam so, Smith, right? So, or, is, or is the other guy you're talking about came out in 1865? Uh, 1865. Was that Adam Smith? Uh, was uh, this was his his name was Samuel Smiles. He wrote a book called Self Help. And it hmm. was the beginning of the huge self help movement. Oh, interesting. Wow, and okay. it was translated in twenty languages. It sold huh. it was, you know, everyone you had the Bible and you had self help. Really? <laughs> but I've never heard of this guy either. Yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't either before I got into all this. Huh. So uh, uh but you can read self help. You know, I worked at Enron for 16 years, I can read self-help and see all the errors okay. of Enron uh, oh, okay. that are in this book. It's all common right. sense. Okay? Yeah, yeah. It's common sense. Well, Insul, he's at the peak. He is uh, the great man of the electricity industry. He's Mr. Chicago, which they call the electric city because mm -hmm. he had done so much. And uh, Insul also got into... Uh, uh, the 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 sub not subways but the trains what, what right. do you call them the, the trolley cars or whatever yeah, the, right the electric trolley cars yeah the electric yeah. you know um, mm -hmm. uh, he got into that that helped the load factor and so also uh, was CEO of uh, People's Natural Gas and there was hmm. a major natural gas pipeline and hmm. he he had it all but then the Great Depression hit right. Okay. And at first, you know, Insel's companies were still profitable, but Insel kept expanding. And uh, President Herbert Hoover had meetings with all the great industrialists where he said, expand, don't lower your rates, your right. uh, wages, you know, uh, because the workers need more money to buy, you know, uh, to sure. buy goods and services. And we had a great uh, deflation uh, wages should have gone down one third and because in purchasing power it was the same so insoles expanding and then insole and this happens to the best of us uh, he failed to overcome success in other hmm. words he wanted to continue hmm. to, to uh, he wanted a legacy so right. what he wanted to do was to form a and he did he formed a holding company to buy all the operational companies hmm. he borrowed a lot of money to do during it. The, during the depression he did that during the great depression this is huh. like in about 1930 huh. 29 30 and he wants to leave this all for his son martin uh, ensel who was also a, a good entrepreneur um, um and so he levers himself to do it 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, business conditions are bad. Uh, and the value of the stocks of the company went way down. And J- J.P. Morgan was on the other side and he and Insel weren't getting along. Okay. And J.P. Morgan uh, pulled the plug. So Insel's whole empire went into receivership. Wow. So Insel was worth $50 million at the peak you know, 1928 or so. And in today's dollars, he would have been a billionaire. Sure. Um, uh, With the bankruptcy, uh, Ensel lost it all. Wow. Uh, He even lost uh, his house. (laughs) And uh, he becomes 1932. I I think it's a uh, 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 FDR makes Ensel the scapegoat of the Great Depression. Wow. Insul and his wife quietly get into a car, go to Canada, take a boat, and move uh, to Paris. And then Insul finds out that his pension uh, was eliminated because he was such a scoundrel. And there's all these lawsuits, right? I mean, Insul's a great salesman. He had uh, the Chicago taxicab drivers and opera singers, they owned uh, stock in his companies. And they, so he, he goes from the, uh, from the penthouse to the outhouse, so to speak. Wow. I heard that there was, or maybe I read there were something like 600,000 people lost their life savings because they had invested in whatever he was selling or however, I can't remember how it was written, but like a lot of people. Yeah. A whole lot of people. Yeah. And, uh, uh, so he's persona non grata. And his son, Martin Ensel, ends up uh, uh, steaming to Europe to hand the old man a suitcase full of cash. Hmm. (laughs) Uh, That's how broke uh, Ensel was. Wow. And Ensel did not want to come back to the U.S. because of the trials and all. He finally gets extradited back. They have sensational trials, and Ensel is acquitted. Yeah. Uh, he didn't uh, perform, uh, he wasn't doing anything fraudulently. He was just right. too confident yeah. and uh, made a lot of entrepreneurial uh, mistakes. Right. And to sort out Ensel's company, once it was in receivership, uh, a new young accounting firm was brought in from Chicago, Arthur Anderson. Hmm. And Arthur Anderson would uh, fail later on Ken Lay and Enron, the great man of the natural gas industry, right. uh, went under. So the Ensel story is really incredible, and it answers your question why why he's not Ensel, huh. you know, regarded as you know uh, one of the top ten, and maybe even top five um, uh, entrepreneurs in the history of the of U.S. business. So I wonder what he was. I wonder what was really behind it. Like, did he? Because obviously he wanted his son to probably like take over where he leaves off. But wasn't his son, did I read his son was like too young at the time or something like that, where there was this like period of time, I may be wrong, but there was a period of time where his son couldn't, was, was not old enough to do that or something. So no, uh, uh, Martin Ensel was plenty competent. He wasn't the old man. No one was the old man. Okay. Okay. But he was plenty uh, competent and he could run a utility. Okay. Fine. Now something else your readers might 
want to know. Samuel Insel is really the father of public utility regulation of the electric industry. Really? Yes, really. In the old days, electricity was not regulated as a public utility. Okay. And uh, Insel keeps lowering rates. He had like 17 rate decreases. Uh, okay. And there was no regulation. Why would Insel want regulation? And it seemed to be a paradox because regulation, you cap your rates, you're just introducing uncertainty. But sure. Insel was fighting two things in Chicago and a lot of utilities were fighting two things. One was the threat of municipalization, and the other was a threat of an arbitrary rate ordinance, where the city fathers go, you're charging, you know, uh, 15 cents per kilowatt hour, you're going to charge 13.2% cents, and I'm, yeah, yeah, and you try to get elected on it. Yeah. And local regulation, you can't beat it. So Ensel right. looked at this, this two-part threat and said, the way out of this is to have a state commission. And already the principle of public utility regulation was established and it was guarded by a constitutional uh, precedent against takings. Okay. Uh, and he said an impartial public utility commission uh, they can, you know, prevent the, the takings problem we have at the local level and uh, they will be fair and they'll give us a, you know, a rate of return on invested capital and the rest of it. So huh. Insel had to sell that to, to the uh, Edison Electric Light Association, which became the Edison Electric Institute. Okay. And uh, it, was, it was a tough sell. Because, you know, a lot of utility executives, they were just seeing the downside of uh, sure. utility regulation. So right. Insel had a huge propaganda campaign where he was hiring uh, uh, economics professors. He was hiring people to go to the Rotary Clubs and huh. to tell them this is the way that you can get cheaper electricity in the okay. long run. And Insel also knew that... Uh, you know, if you're building a new generation plant, you need to get a 20, 30 year note on it. Sure. And you can't do that with local regulation, but under public utility regulation, that that makes it easier hmm. for uh, investors to buy into long term uh, bonds. He was a genius, huh? As far as business is concerned, he was a total genius. He just seemed to have a, an understanding of what was around the corner. Yeah, he was he was uh, something else, and the problem is these great entrepreneurs a lot of times are too optimistic, right, right? Right. And the Great Depression hits, and you know we the United States should have gotten out of the Great Depression in 1930, 1931. Okay. Uh, but uh, and before all the depressions that hit the U.S., we were out of them pretty quickly because yeah. the government stayed out of it. You right. go through the painful contraction. And then you build up. But Herbert Hoover, uh, he uh, uh, he's the one uh, that are, was originally part of the big unemployment problem because he was insisting to keep wages at pre-depression 
levels. Okay. And again, we had a de deflation of 30%. Right. So Hoover, uh, Hoover's policy and the Reconstruction Finance Corporation increasing taxes and particularly the tariffs, the Hawks-Smutley tariffs of 1932, that was, Hoover was really the first New Dealer. And then hmm. FDR made it even worse with more intervention. And we never got out of the depression for a decade. We went to a war economy, basically right. went to a war economy where, uh, you know, we were rationing yeah. coffee at home, you right. know, and everything was going to the war. So, you know, they say the war got us out of the depression, not really after the wars when we got out of the depression. Hmm. Interesting. Damn. I never really thought about it that way, but it makes sense. That's a whole nother thing. And if you understand yeah. that, you end up being a real free marketeer like myself. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Because the Great Depression forms your worldview. If you think that FDR and the New Deal was the savior of the U.S. economy, you're going to have a progressive worldview okay. where you also believe in the Green New Deal and other things. Right. But if you look at it in a revisionist perspective, then uh, you come to a really an opposite conclusion. So from that, from the Great Depression and from Insul and the way that he changed the modern electric industry and energy in general, where, where do you see us going? Like, you know, obviously the population has amassed worldwide. It's a, it's a crazy world right now. Where do you see the future of of energy going? Well, you know, today it's a Green New Deal. It's kind of distributed generation. Uh, I, I think it's all based on a fallacy, and I really go back to Insel. Amen. If you want the cheaper, let's put air quality and global warming aside for a minute. Mm -hmm. The economics for the most affordable, reliable electricity is central station generation. There's economies okay. of scale. Okay. Um, if you want to just go to a lot of distributed generation where you don't have backup, you know, that's really going to the back to sort of the electricity uh, poverty area. Right, right. Now, there's enough. Uh, so if Insel was alive today, uh, he would certainly. Uh, I think Insel's model still applies. In other words, okay. we, we okay. still, uh, if, in a, if it weren't for public utility regulation, I think we'd have very vertically integrated and maybe horizontally integrated electric companies, sort okay. of like the uh, oil major, mm -hmm. where you're in exploration, production, distribution, refining, retailing, uh, without public utility regulation, I think it would be profit maximizing for utility for utilities to be completely uh, integrated. Okay. Uh, uh, and then uh, this gets interesting when you say, well, how they can they compete? Well, you, you look in the old days, you see these wires on the on the poles and you see all these wires. Mm -hmm. Why can't we have competition i mean with pipelines it's a little tougher but right. bringing a new piece of electricity yeah uh it can so that you have done. an option yeah for sure yeah yeah and a new company you and i could say we're going to have a new electricity distribution company 
and we're not going to spend any money except our time, okay? Mm-hmm. We're going to go door to door knocking and saying, if you'll write here that you'll give us a five-year contract at the rate you're paying minus 20%, uh, if we give you service one year from now, you get enough people to sign up and those are legal contracts, guess what? Then we'll string the wires and come serve you. In other words, potential competition. Right, right. Potential competition is important. So I uh, am against regulation of the electricity industry, uh, period. Now, the green power, you and I could have another segment on that. Right. But the problem is energy density and and intermittency. The mineral energies, oil, gas, coal, and even uranium. This is the sun's work over the millions of years. Right, right. The density that's in there is unparalleled compared to a very dilute flow that comes from the sun, the wind, and even um, uh, the uh, uh, hydro. You know, you can have a good hydro year or a bad hydro year. And there's a book written in 1865 called The Coal Question by William Stanley Jevons. And Jevons got it in 1865. That's still the most important book ever written on energy economics. And he understood that the coal revolution in England at the time uh, changed everything. That, you know, you can have a bad water year, uh, primitive biomass burning plants and wood uh, was very inefficient. He said, you know, coal is this is what we power the machines with. Right. Uh, so really, Jevons refutes green energy in 1865. And Ensel's model of the modern electric industry, I think, refutes the idea of distributed uh, gener- off-the-grid generation. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if there's not, I think the only downside to all of it with, with finite resources is that they're finite and you, and to get to them, you gotta, you gotta break something, you gotta dig in something. But, but even when you think about green energy, I mean, there's, there's battery production and there's, there's a, uh, you know, solar panels. Um, you've got to produce that stuff. You've got to mine, um, there's no way around it really um so i don't know it's almost like the more movie planet of the humans no uh look at that that's caused a bit of a civil war within the uh, environmental community because uh, i would argue that the fossil fuels are the least disruptive uh to the ecosystem compared to wind and solar because wind and solar you're concentrating a very dilute flow so you need a whole lot of land you need a whole lot of steel you need a whole lot of cement sure and the dense energy it's under the ground you mine it but everything that's renewable is at the surface okay right right. so uh uh that's uh, that's a it's yeah it's a debate man it's like you'll People it's will, people will, they will, the people will talk till they're blue in the face of it. But it's like, what's the right way? I mean, no matter what you do, human beings are going to, we need stuff to keep going. And so, um, I don't know. Now you one. mentioned something, but you know, that oil, gas and coal are finite. 
Yeah. And, you know, for since the beginning of the industry, you know, we're going to run out of, we're finding the easy stuff, right? Pro costs have to go up. Price has to go up. Yeah. But uh, there's a school of thought that has explained that resources come from the mind and not the ground. Okay. In other words, if you think of entrepreneurship in a, in a free society where you have more and more capital, right. and you have better, more machines, more capital, that depleting resources are actually expanding resources. Okay. And then you elaborate on the renewables and say that they're really depleting because finding a really good wind site mm -hmm. or finding enough uh, steel and electricity uh, to produce it, uh, finding the capital, all those things are scarce. Sure. Uh, so I've given a talk why uh, non-renewable resources are, are renewable and renewable resources are non <laughs> <laughs> So can you, can you elaborate a little bit on how the resources in your mind are? What, what did you say there? You said something about how we think that resources are finite, but, but the resources, resources come mind. from the mind and not the ground. Okay. And the, the term natural resources is, is very misleading because, yeah. you know, maybe you'll find a few natural and it's on the surface, but it's a lot of trouble to get down there. Sure. And so human knowledge is the ultimate resource. And another name to throw at you, Julian Simon, he okay. wrote a book in 1981 where he predicted that the price of minerals, including oil and gas, would go down over time, not up, given mm. a free market. Mm. And he completely was blown or he was uh, he was told he was ignorant by the mainstream Paul Ehrlich and all that said more people yeah less resources more sure. human misery and Julian Simon I'll pull out the book here okay Julian Simon 1981 the ultimate resource the ultimate What's resource What's the ultimate resource? I would imagine your mind is the, the ultimate mind. resource, right? Uh, and if you look at the recorded history of prices for all the minerals from yeah. the beginning of time, and you compare them to the general basket of yeah. goods, Simon was making a case that the mineral prices go down more than the price of a cook or hmm. a uh, cab driver. Right. Because what's the scarcest resource? Uh, labor, a person's yeah. time. Yeah, right. right? Hmm. Uh, so, you know, he turned it all around and he made a very famous bet, the most famous bet in the history of economics in 1980 against Paul Ehrlich and John Holdren, who was Obama's science advisor. Mm -hmm. And he told uh, Ehrlich et al., you pick any resource in a year in the future, but, you know, make it in the future. And I will bet adjusted for inflation, the price of those minerals will be less than today. Okay. And uh, Ehrlich and um, uh, Holder and all of them, oh, this is easy money. And yeah. they were having this debate in the journals. Okay. Huh. So Ehrlich and them, they, they picked five uh, minerals, you know, zinc, copper, and uh, a few others. Yeah, they, it was in 1980. They picked 1990, and Simon won on all five, hmm. 
uh, adjusted for inflation. They even went on some adjusted, uh, you know, in nominal terms. Huh. And so Ehrlich uh, and them paid up the check. It was like 600 bucks they lost. Right. But Simon was, uh, Julian Simon was, a uh, uh, he was an intellectual entrepreneur. And yeah. He, Simon's point was that people aren't the problem, people are the solution. Interesting. Because if you see the human mind as the ultimate resources, we need more people, not less. Okay. And imagine if World War II didn't happen and we had, yeah. what, six million more Jewish people. And, in in in, you know, I think you could enter, a, enter into a store today and it would look a little different. Yeah, I bet you're right. things for sale. I like that perspective because it's uh... – it's optimistic. And uh, I know we mentioned earlier that some, one of the downfalls of some entrepreneurs is they're too optimistic, but I feel like that's important. Um, cause it, I mean, when you're thinking about any sort of entrepreneurial endeavor, the, the, one of the main, uh, factors is risk. Like you're, you're, you can't always see what's coming. And sometimes it's important to just go and then you'll see it. I'm sure Insul felt that all the time. I'm sure he, had no idea what he was doing sometimes. And, and it's not until you, you get to a certain point and you kind of see the solution. And I think that what you were just talking to kind of points to that. It's like people are afraid. I think we're, we can be afraid as people because it's like, well, it does make sense to think if there's more people, there's less resources. It's a really common way to think about it. Um, but only an entrepreneur would see it the other way around because it would, you know, you would, as an entrepreneur, that's what you're doing. You're, you're taking a risk and you're trusting in your mind. Yeah. Well, yeah. Simon would also say until about age 20, uh, the new person, the extra person is a burden, you know, yeah. is a net consumer rather than a yeah. producer. But yeah. then it's in those out years on average, the person creates more than, uh, they were consuming in the early okay. years. Simon would also say in countries uh, that don't have private uh, property, don't have voluntary exchange, don't have the rule of law, and it's a political society, people mm -hmm. are burdened. Right. Uh, that more right. people, they're not in a position where they can right. uh, produce. That's um, right. And so it's a burden. And, you know, these families in un undeveloped countries, well, they have lots of kids, and one reason is they are hoping one kid will be successful enough right. to take care of them in old age. Whereas wow. in our our society, our problem is going to be too low a birth rate. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. I mean, it's expensive, right? I mean, it's that's the other side of it. It's you know, um, it's a challenge no matter no matter where you're at. But I do I do like your take on on all of the economics of just just kind of thinking about things in that way economically and how one yeah. one thing relates to the other um there's a term that uh, maybe you or your viewers should google it's called okay. resourceship okay and that's entrepreneurship applied to resources and uh i didn't invent it but i've helped popularize it right. and it is really a liberating optimistic view of the world that human beings on average, given the right incentives, produce more that they can consume. So okay. you know, what's the carrying capacity of the, of the world? 
you know, Paul Ehrlich and the Doomsdayers, you know, the population bomb, maybe mm-hmm. you've heard of that book. No, I haven't heard it of the population bomb. It came out in 1968. Okay. The population bomb. It sold millions. And Paul Ehrlich was on the Johnny Carson show. Are you old enough? You probably don't know about old Johnny Carson. Oh, sure. Of course. Yeah, I remember show. Johnny Carson for sure. Da, of course. Da, 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 oh, yeah. Da. Ed McMahon well, and Johnny Carson. Yeah, uh, uh, Paul Ehrlich was on a dozen times, and he he predicted food riots in the American cities hmm. uh, within one or two decades, and okay. it was doom and gloom. Yeah, and then you have this Simon is saying people aren't the problem; people are the solution. Yeah, right. And it was two two worldviews, but I'd say that generally Simon has has won the debate. Except, right. guess where the catastrophes are uh, they're focused on the global warming issue this is sort of like the last stand of how self-interested human activity is going to imperil the world and there that's a whole nother debate i'm a global lukewarmer (laughs) and global lukewarming i think true it's in the middle and global lukewarming. Uh, there's benefits. There's not only cost. We're going to need some more air conditioning. We're going <laughs> to need some uh, steel and concrete structures yeah. uh, at the coastlines, but we can handle it. Yeah, I, and I like that take. I mean, I, I definitely think that human beings have an effect on, on the world around us, both positive and negative. Um, but I agree with you. I think the mindset it should be... Um, What's the what? Because because if you face any any issue, no matter what you're doing, if you face an issue, you've got two ways about it. One way is that you can say, "Ah, this is not going to work out. We're screwed." And the other way is you can be like, ah, "We're gonna let's let's figure it out." And I and I think I think that's the best way forward, no matter what. It's like let's um. I think a lot of it is is uh, poised for political. Uh, positioning and i think that uh, that's unfortunate because ultimately you're right it is people are a, a really valuable resource and we're, we're all in it we're all on this earth uh so you know let's I, get I, along I agree with that. let's, let's get along for sure no doubt well robert i won't take up any more of your time and I, I really really appreciate your time and, and expertise i i loved hearing about insul and i'm sure uh my listeners will too man i really appreciate your time very, very good. It's nice to be with you, and, and thank you for having the initiative and the intellectual entrepreneurship to have this uh, program. This is uh, you have a day job, and you do this on the side. I own an electric company. I co-own with a partner. Okay. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. We'll, so we'll keep it up. I will. I appreciate that. And I really, I really appreciate your time. All right. That was my conversation with Dr. Robert Bradley. Dr. Bradley, thank you so much for coming on. Appreciate your, uh, your time and your expertise. It was a lot of fun. I learned a lot. Uh, hopefully you guys learned something as well. Maybe about Samuel Insull, uh, maybe about the economics of energy. Um, you can check out Dr. Bradley online. Just, uh, search the Institute for Energy Research and, uh, look for his book, Edison to Enron. Um, Go check that out. Give it a read. Join us next time. Uh, Next week, we're going to have another awesome conversation coming your way. Uh, I've been talking to some really interesting young uh, electricians out there. I'm I'm continuously impressed by some of the young folks that are uh, reaching out and wanting to share their stories. So uh, 
be on the lookout for some of those conversations. Check us out online, www.modernelectricianpod.com. And there you can donate to the Patreon account. If we can get that Patreon account going, who knows what the future of this podcast would be, right? Maybe just do it from a, a hot air balloon or something, you know, just go around doing the podcast in a Zeppelin. Maybe that's what we would do. I'll put your money to good use. Trust me. All right, guys, we'll see you next time.